and welcome to the Apple Insider Podcast. This is your host, Stephen Robles, and joining me this week with a new iPad Air that he's going to be talking about, Wes Hilliard. What's up, Wes? Good morning, Stephen. So much to talk about this week, and we'll just jump right into it. Let's talk about the iPhone 12 Pro in my case. Now, you did not get one of the new iPhones. You chose to go with the iPad Air this pre-order, but which model are you waiting for? Pre-orders will be in... A week from today. I'm getting the iPhone 12 Pro Max. Waiting for the Max. I totally get it. It has the better camera. Hopefully I will not regret my choice. But I went ahead and got the iPhone 12 Pro. And I have some thoughts on it. I got the white iPhone or the silver color as Apple calls it. I have to say I love the flat edge design. I love that they went back to this hardware feature where it's just the flat sides, flat bottom and all that. It is definitely bigger than the iPhone 11 Pro. I have the 12 Pro, which is actually the same body size as the 12 this year. You can get a case and it fits both of them. They're exactly the same physical dimensions, but it definitely feels larger than the 11 Pro that I came from. Well, I like the flat sides and the grippiness there. Uh, just it feels larger. And again, one of the reasons why I went with this version is those Max versions, I'm sure will feel ginormous. But you know, if you want that kind of screen size, for sure, you'll love that. But anyway, I love the design. The silver edges on the iPhone 12 Pro, I have to tell you, are super fingerprinty. Usually use cases, so I don't see it that much. But if you like to go caseless, then you might want to go with one of those darker colors. You know, everyone's getting the Pacific blue, it seems like this year, because it's the new color available. But the silver one's definitely super fingerprinty. What color were you going to go for when that Pro Max is available? Well, I was thinking about graphite, but now I've heard everyone call it dull and boring and... <laughs> say you're the boring person if you get the graphite model and i just feel bad but right definitely interested in that blue especially now that i have the ipad air that subtle blue tone seems to be what the pro max is going with or maybe a little bit more blue on the on the iphone but i might be okay with that i'm not sure yet you know something about the blue and like the green last year with the 11 because i typically use a case i don't know how much of an issue this is but you know when you like match colors and stuff i typically like to have either a black or white phone so this way whatever color i get i, I usually like the brownish leather cases for the iphone and so i try to get something that would look good with that i guess the Pacific blue would look fine with it too, but I don't know. That's just how I am. Don't, but Wes, don't make people feel bad. You're not boring if you get black or graphite or whatever color Apple calls it this year. So I'll be going caseless because uh, uh-huh. I've been experimenting with uh, this phone. Um, I decided that I would go the whole year without a case, except for the battery case, whenever I would use it. And yeah. uh, it's been fine so far. Nothing exploded. And um, I think this is the iPhone to do it with for sure. So I'm, I'm excited for that. Okay. Yeah. And I sometimes go caseless. I mean, I have Apple Care with it and I shouldn't be nervous about dropping it, but I don't know. Any, any little nick or scratch. Now, there were some ceramic shield tests out there. There were different videos of people testing the hardness and when it shatters and also the scratch resistance. It looks like the scratch resistance is about on par with the 11 pro but shatter resistance might actually uh, it has been improved and so it would take more to actually shatter the screen but you know i actually don't typically shatter my screens i'm just wary of like little nicks and scrapes and things like that if i happen to drop it or you know hit it against something as i'm walking around i don't know but anyway we'll see you can go caseless this year and grip the phone better it does not feel like a wet fish as you try to hold those rounded sides from the 11 or 11 pro one of the you know big standout features that is brand new and is only on the Pro model this year is that LiDAR scanner. 
And while it's mainly for augmented reality use cases, and that's where you'll really see it shine, a couple cool things that I have found in using the 12 Pro. One is, if you didn't know, you can actually measure someone's height now in the Measure app of your iPhone 12 Pro, and it uses the LiDAR scanner specifically. And all you have to do is open the Measure app Put someone in the frame so their entire body, head to toe, is in the frame. And then after a few seconds, a little line appears and it tells you how tall they are. And it's kind of a little gimmicky, but it's also really cool. And so I've been doing that a bunch. I did it with all my kids. And you can kind of take a picture with the line in the shot. And so I was doing that. But kind of a cool use case for LiDAR. But actually more useful is the night portrait mode that actually uses the LiDAR scanner to focus. So I actually went out here in Central Florida at night, went to like one of the lakes around me and did some portrait shots of my kids. And I will say it does work pretty well. Again, depending on your lighting and all that, you might get some noise. I did it on a tripod to give my night mode the longest exposure possible. And it does look really good. Portrait mode works. It focuses quickly. And if you have a tripod, or even if you want to try it handheld, that night mode works pretty well enough to get a good portrait shot at night. So very cool there. And also one of the new features is that Dolby HDR video. And as I was searching for 5G in my area, which we'll talk about in a second, I did shoot some video. It was very bright outside, bright sky and, you know, against a city street. But I have to say all that video stuff looks great. Whenever you watch a video on the iPhone 12 Pro that you captured on the 12 Pro, you kind of see the video get brighter and I mean, honestly, it just looked great. So Dolby HDR video, two thumbs up for sure. Video content looks great. And also have tried the MagSafe connector and trying the different silicone cases. I don't typically wireless charge overnight. And so I kind of just have the MagSafe charger here on my desk. And I will say, I know you, you had a tweet about this too, you know, talking about the magnets. The cases and MagSafe chargers came out before the phone. And so I, a lot of people, including me, I had a silicone case and I had the MagSafe charger. And I was kind of just testing the strength of the magnets from that. And it didn't seem to be very strong. But I do have to say with the phone, once you have the phone in the case, or if you're just using a phone without a case and you're looking for that MagSafe charger, the magnet does feel stronger. And I'm just testing it now on my desk. If you do put it anywhere near the little puck, not really little puck, but the large puck for MagSafe, it will tap and click on and you don't have to get super close. So, you know, don't judge it just by case and MagSafe. When you actually have the full phone in a case or just the phone by itself, that magnet does feel a little stronger and it finds the MagSafe charger pretty quickly. So yeah, uh, MagSafe's interesting because, uh, I mean, you see the people already complaining. It seems too weak. The magnets need to be stronger. I wonder if third parties can make their magnets stronger. And my argument here is, is while maybe it can get stronger in the future or whatever, it seems fine for what it is now i've i've seen people uh mount it in the car by apple's magsafe charger i think there's like a little third-party plastic mold you can fit it into and they said that you know it didn't wobble or anything while driving so i trust that that magnet's enough um apple knows what they're doing i don't think they you know just invented this technology offhandedly and just like let's just throw it in there and see what happens uh, you know I, i'm sure there was some testing involved when it comes to stronger magnets what's interesting there is i, I think that's just people throwing on around words without knowing what they're asking for because i mean right. just imagine you're you put your iphone down on a table and you pick it up and it's covered in those little metal shards that you get from uh, wear and tear on an old metal table or uh, go and put it in a bag and pull it out and it's covered in paper clips. You know, at a, I, I wonder now if that's 
going to happen. You know, I, I, I don't know anyone with iPhone 12, but this is something to test. You know, how strong is that magnet in the iPhone with no other magnets present? You know, no MagSafe charger or anything connected. Are we going to see weird things like that happen? Because if you own an iPad Pro with the magnetic case and stuff, I have noticed that some debris can attract to the sides of the iPad. It doesn't really cause any scratching or scuffing, but if you don't notice it's there and then slap a case on it, you can rub it in real good and uh, mess up your finish. So it's definitely something worth looking out for. Anything stronger than what we got now would probably introduce some trouble, I think. Yeah, especially if you get one of those wallets that, you know, supposedly shielded, but still, if you get too strong of a third-party magnet in there. And apparently Apple does have guidelines for the actual strength of the magnets that you can use in third-party cases and such and third-party accessories so apple has guidelines of course accessory makers can go against those guidelines and put just a super strong magnet in it yeah it remains to be seen i actually have this little metal bracket here i don't even know what this is but just a random piece of metal and just against the case it definitely sticks and so any kind of metal debris like you're saying like paper clips it would for sure stick to the back of that phone if you put it on it and i'll actually put a link to your retweet on Twitter, you retweeted Jonathan Morrison. He has a video of him kind of holding this metal plate and there's an iPhone 12 kind of just stuck to it and he's turning it all around and turning it upside down so the iPhone could fall off if that magnet wasn't strong enough and uh, doesn't seem to have any issue there holding on. Yeah, someone said, you should flap it harder. I'm like, yeah, then it'll definitely fly <laughs> off. <I> mean, <laughs> you shake anything hard enough, it's going to come off. Yeah, I'm sure Apple made the magnet as strong as it could be safely and to work with accessories and to not damage or you know pick up so much random stuff. Like, you know, I don't think you want your phone coming out with your keys if you're pulling it out of your pocket. And I don't know if you put your keys in the same pocket as your iPhone, but if you do, uh, that's maybe don't do that. That's scary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Don't do that. Uh, but anyway, so the MagSafe stuff is interesting. One of the pieces of news that came out this past week was it's possible that there's reverse wireless charging hidden inside the new iPhones with that new MagSafe you know, kind of system that it has in the back of the phone. I'll put a link to the article in show notes. Probably basically because it's a two-way system where it has NFC and whatnot can communicate with what it's attaching to. If the iPhone's able to negotiate with what it's attaching to, it can probably determine if it can send out power through those coils because all this is is a magnetic attachment. I mean, MagSafe and wireless charging in general is just a very simple wired coil attached to a microprocessor saying power in or power out. And it's true, Apple could probably flip a switch somewhere and have that coil reverse and turn into a power out for, you know, AirPods. But doing so, while would be interesting, might also introduce other issues like overheating. You know, if you're introducing a bunch of heat to the back of your iPhone to push power out to AirPods, what is that doing to the battery life of your iPhone over time? Yeah, so that's sure. probably why it's not enabled um, or possibly may never be enabled. Right. So it was an FCC filing that Apple made. Again, doesn't talk exactly about this feature, but it points to that idea. And one of the reasons why I think there might be some credence to this is that NFC chip that they put in the MagSafe coils, you know, right now that NFC chip is basically used for when you snap on a case, you see a circle on screen that matches the color of the case, which is cool, but seems like not a huge use for NFC specifically. So, you know, I could imagine that if it allowed to charge your AirPods from the back of the phone, that the NFC communication between the AirPods case and your phone would show like the battery level on it. Again, that seems a little strange because you would have to have the phone face down in order to have the AirPods on the back charging. 
doubt a magnet would be strong enough to hold an AirPods Pro case to the back of the phone. There's been some weird renders around Twitter kind of showing AirPods stuck to the back of an iPhone. So I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of like 40, 60, 40, maybe it will be something. 60, probably not. But there's lots of those renders on Twitter if you want to kind of see what that might look like. I mean, if this were any other company, Apple would just release a set of headphones with a giant magnet on the back of the case and you would just slap the case on the back of the phone and then there you go. Right. You have an iPhone AirPods pods case combo but i don't think they're going to do that yeah you're probably right one other piece of information on magsafe apple touted that magsafe will charge your phone at 15 watts wirelessly but to get that full 15 watts you actually have to use apple's own 20 watt brick now you can use the 18 watt power brick that might have come with your iphone 11 pro i had that brick you apparently get 13 watts someone had a test video i'll put the link in show notes you can kind of see how they tested it with one of these like pass-through power things but you can still get 13 watts which is definitely almost double what you get from normal chi charging at seven and a half watts but if you want that full 15 watt charge with magsafe on your new iphone you do need that 20 watt brick uh, that apple just started selling now for 19 bucks so i did pick one up that's what i use with my magsafe charger when i do have it on my desk charging but just so you know if you want that full 15 watts you might want to pick up that new 20 watt brick so this is a whole another you know usual apple controversy type thing uh, the internet's going wild apple stopped shipping bricks in their box also right. here's a magsafe charger also you need to buy a charger separately that is different from the one that you've gotten previously i'm currently writing an article on this uh, it'll be out today um so by the time this podcast comes out you can read it it'll it's going into depth on uh, magsafe charging what exactly is required um for this to work and why Apple requires that 20 watt charger. Turns out it's not the Apple charger that's required. It's just any uh, USB power delivery 3.0 charger with 20 watts or greater. And this is, uh, I won't go into technical details because that's gonna be in the article, but for the most basic part of it, it's um, how it's designed internally, how it's negotiating for that power. And in order to wirelessly charge something at 15 watts, you do need some overhead. So that five watt overhead gives Apple a little breathing room so that they're not shipping with the requirement of, oh, 15 watts with a 18 watt charger, sure, but your efficiencies would probably be so low that you'd probably never hit that 15 watts with an 18 watt charger. So Apple's just dodging some usual bullets by creating new ones for (laughs) the fans, as as it were. But yes, uh, that 20 watt requirement, it's not arbitrary, it's not made up or whatever cash grab that people are saying there are some technical reasons behind it. It's interesting to look into because, God, USB protocols or whatever, it's (laughs) <laughs> it's a hellscape. It's not It's not fun. Sure. And <laughs> looking into how uh, the thought process behind a lot of it, I mean, someone plugged in a 96-watt charger and got 10 watts out, and there's a reason for that. Funny enough, it's not some limitation of MagSafe. It's actually a limitation of that charger because the charger is older than the 3.0 spec, it doesn't know how to negotiate for that newer charging speed, which is a very specific voltage and amperage rating, which isn't offered by these older chargers. It defaults to a much lower rating. So I will definitely refer people to your article for details, but I'm curious if you know off the top of your head, I have an Anchor 30 watt PowerPort Atom brick. It was kind of one of their first GAN power bricks. It's 30 watts. It has power delivery, but I don't think it has that newest power delivery system. So is it safe to say this probably won't 
Give me that full 15 watts, even though it's a 30-watt brick. Well, if it has GAN, it must have come out within the last few months. Power Delivery 3.0 came out last year in June, and it being Anchor, I'm assuming that they've implemented the technology. I don't see them putting 2.0 in a brand new charger, especially with GAN, because the difference between 2.0 and 3.0 is actually pretty great as far as efficiency for charging. There's a lot more negotiation going on, and uh, the power adapter actually gets a lot more information from the iPhone or battery or whatever you're charging uh, as to how to handle it. So yeah, there's no reason for them not to have included it. So I would assume that it's safe just because it, it is over that 20 watt threshold. It would have that particular rating built in. I, it would have to, I would have to look it up or maybe test it, but I'm sure it's fine. Look for Wes's article about all those details because it's, yeah, it, it gets complicated <laughs> with wattage and, and all that. And so one last big portion of the iPhone 12 Pro that I just want to kind of review and then maybe we could talk about, you know, who should upgrade and is, is it worth it? You know, question that everybody asks. So we've been talking about 5G a lot the last couple of weeks. We have the coverage maps and all the cities that have ultra wideband. So go ahead and check out those articles. But I just want to tell a brief story about me trying to find 5G+. Plus. So I have AT&T and AT&T calls their ultra wideband or millimeter wave, which is the faster 5G. They refer to it as 5G+. Plus. Verizon calls it their ultra wideband. And Amber actually had a great article on Apple Insider that talks about the different symbols that you'll see on the iPhone and what 5G you have with that symbol. I'll put a link to that in show notes as well. But with AT&T 5G+, they claim it is in Orlando, Florida, which is about an hour away from where I live. And so I went to Orlando and I will tell you, I drove up and down many downtown streets. I got out and walked around. I even looked up some Orlando Sentinel newspaper articles that talked about how 5G was coming to Orlando, and they pictured some of the 5G towers that were supposedly put up. And so, listener, let me tell you, I Google mapped, street viewed exactly where those towers were. I found them. I stood right under these towers. And as far as I can tell, I do not see 5G plus from AT&T anywhere in downtown Orlando. Now, one of the things I heard from... Actually, Joanna Stern actually tweeted back at me talking about maybe it's in the stadium of the Amway Center. And so while I couldn't get in to test it, I actually called the Amway Center. I talked to their head of security. I talked to their head of their IT department. And neither of them know about any 5G being installed in the stadium at all. The IT lead guy, whoever he is for the stadium, he didn't think that it was ever installed either. And as far as I could tell, Disney World and like other theme parks are saying they're going to work to install 5G in the future, but it is not at the theme parks either. And I also called AT&T and I don't have a specific contact. And listen, if anyone out there has a contact directly for AT&T corporate, I would love to talk to them about this. <laughs> but I actually called a local AT&T store in Orlando, a retail store, and I called like the AT&T customer support line. And neither customer service rep could help me or even kind of knew what I was talking about. When I called the AT&T retail store in or downtown Orlando, they said, yeah, 5G is everywhere. And I was like, yeah, I know that 5G is everywhere. I'm talking about this specific millimeter wave ultra wideband 5G plus. I'm trying to use AT&T's terminology to help kind of move this conversation along. They did not know what I was talking about, did not know where to find it. And the customer rep that I called on the customer support line did not know what I meant by 5G plus either. They could not tell me anything where it was. All they did was send me the same coverage map that I've been linking the last several weeks, which shows AT&T's quote unquote 5G coverage, which is basically all over Central Florida, but that's not the 5G we're talking about. That's the sub six slower 5G, which here in Lakeland, Florida, where I am, is actually I got the same speed on my 11 Pro on LTE as I did on that 5G on AT&T. So all that to say, 
I could not find 5G Plus anywhere in downtown Orlando or Orlando City proper. I called the Amway Center. I called AT&T. I am almost convinced that 5G Plus does not exist in Orlando, even though AT&T clearly lists it under its 5G Plus cities. So two questions and asks from our listeners this week. One, if you have actually seen AT&T 5G Plus pop up on your iPhone 12 and you did a speed test, you know, go to your settings, cellular, do the 5G always on, use more data, do a speed test. Let me know if you have done that and actually actually seen fast speeds or if you've seen 5G Plus anywhere. And two, if anyone has some contact at AT&T, I would love to talk to them about where exactly I could find 5G Plus. I was almost tempted because AT&T also lists Miami as a 5G plus city and specifically Miami Gardens as having 5G plus. Now that's a three hour drive from where I am. I have not gone so far as to take that drive yet, but I am very close because I really want to try and see if AT&T 5G plus is like a real thing because every test online and all the reviewers on the different websites, everything is about Verizon ultra wideband and I'm not seeing anybody with AT&T 5G plus. So that is my all call to our listeners about AT&T 5G+. If you can tweet at me, at Stephen Robles, do you have any 5G near you with a Verizon or AT&T that you think you'll be able to test when that max comes? I have no idea. I'm in the mountains. It's a little harder to get those kinds of signals this far. Uh, we're also a small town. I might have to drive to Knoxville or, God forbid, even Nashville, uh, <laughs> test this. So we'll see. Might have a two to five hour drive in my future. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you take that two hour, five hour drive, you let me know and I'll, I'll go down to Miami. We'll, we'll test it at the same time. This episode is brought to you by the Nebbia by Moen Spa Shower. I like to think that if Apple were ever to make a shower, this would be it. Actually, one of the co-founders was on the original iPhone team, and one of the original investors in Nebbia was Tim Cook. So Nebbia started in Mexico City where water shortages were a big problem. Nebbia came to Silicon Valley to raise money, and they were after how to make an amazing shower experience while saving water. Their product was developed by former Tesla, Apple, and NASA engineers, and they created a superior shower experience. Not only that, their mission of saving water has led them to save over 175 million gallons of water. Just incredible. So I have one of the Nebbia by Moen spa showers, and let me tell you, I know it could be a little intimidating thinking about installing a shower yourself, but I'm not particularly a do-it-yourself kind of guy, and installing the Nebbia by Moen spa shower was super easy. They give you detailed instructions, all the parts you need to get the job done, and it really only took me about 15 minutes to swap out my old shower head and put in the Nebbia by Moen spa shower. Not only is it easy to install, but let me tell you, the shower experience is awesome. It atomizes water and it basically envelops you 360 degrees in water. It feels amazing. I love that the shower head is adjustable so you can adjust the height and you can also get it with this awesome wand where you can attach it to this little magnetic dome you put on the side of your shower and use the wand everywhere. Again, I just love the shower experience and I learned a new term from the Nebbia people, thermal comfort. That means if you like your shower hot, you're going to love the Nebbia by Moen Spa Shower because it keeps the water hot and envelops you in it. It feels great. This is Nebbia's most affordable shower yet, and it starts at just $1.99. It actually saves 45% of water compared to a normal shower head, but has two times greater coverage. 
Nebbia also makes beautiful accessories to go match with the shower. I actually have one of their shower shelves where you can put your shampoos. It's got little hooks to hang loofahs. I love the little shower shelf and it matches perfectly. It comes in several different finishes to match your shower. I got the nickel version and it just looks great against my tile. But don't just take my word for it. My three kids actually love taking showers with the Nebbia by Moen Spa Shower. So here's what they think. It's amazing. I love the shower. I rate it a 5 out of 5 because I like the wand. And so right now, Nebbia doesn't often do sales, but they have a special deal for you Apple Insider listeners. You can get 15% off site-wide anything you want from Nebbia's website, but it's only for the first 100 listeners of Apple Insider. So go to nebbia.com slash Apple Insider and use the promo code Apple Insider for 15% off. It's only for the first 100 people who do it this time, and they're going fast, so you don't want to miss it. So go to nebbia.com slash Apple Insider, take a look at all that they have to offer, and use the coupon code Apple Insider, all one word, when checking out. That's nebbia.com slash Apple Insider. Our thanks to Nebbia by Moen for sponsoring this episode. So as far as rounding out our iPhone 12 review here, you know, I love the phone. I love the hardware design. Some of those night mode shots are noticeably better. Love that. Everyone asks, you know, should you upgrade? You know, and this is such a hard question to answer for lots of people. One, you know, if you have a 10s or older phone, if you didn't upgrade last year, I do think this is a great year to upgrade. You do get 5G, which is more future proofing than actual using like useful 5G now. But then you have it built into your phone for when it does, if and when it comes to your area. I love the hardware design. If you like that flat edge design from like the iPhone 4 and 5 era, you're going to love this design. If you go on the Pro, it's got that nice blue color. It does have Dolby HDR video across the line. So 10s or older, I do think it's a great year to upgrade. If you have an 11 Pro or Pro Max, I would really wait until that 12 Pro Max comes out. And when Wes comes back on and talks about his Pro Max, we can find out how much better that larger camera sensor actually is. And maybe that will tell us if it's worth upgrading to that Max version, you know, if you really want the best camera available. So that's my two cents on the iPhone 12 and 12 Pro. You know, I do really enjoy it. And if I ever find 5G+, I will be sure to let all of you know. One last tidbit on the 12. There was actually a leaked video from YouTuber George Bunici or Bunici. I'm not sure how you would say it in Romanian, but he actually has a YouTube channel and it looks like it kind of got released by accident, but he actually has a YouTube video with the iPhone 12 mini. And this video was comparing the size to the iPhone 12. And it's since been taken down. 9to5Mac tried to put it back up and then it was taken down again. So I don't know if you can actually see it, but there are screen grabs and screenshots from this comparison of the iPhone 12 mini and the regular 12. And it does look like a very small phone. And so if you were into that small phone size and you really want to hold out, you know, wait for the iPhone 12 too. It has all the exact same specs and features as the regular 12, and it's in a smaller package. So uh, we'll put a link in show notes to that. You can kind of see some of the screen grabs from that video from George. And uh, hopefully this does not put him on the blacklist from ever being able to review an iPhone uh, pre-release in the future. But yeah, that's that's tough. All right. Well, we are here to the iPad Air. Wes, you got one on launch day. There was some complications <laughs> with your delivery. Wes, tell us about the iPad Air. Uh, excuse me if anything I say is relevant to the 11 inch iPad Pro because these two machines are very similar yeah. and I've never owned the 11 inch form factor. It does remind me of the fact that coming up before iPad Pros were a thing, the Air was the flagship model. You know, we came through with the 10.5 inch all the way up to uh, 
this new 10.9 inch model and their screen size hasn't really changed too much. Now, this form factor is really excellent. I, I really like it. And I, again, this goes for the 11 inch pro as well. It fits perfectly in my hands. I feel like as a tablet, it is the perfect size and shape to just hold, carry around, uh, read a book while lying in bed type thing, uh, or playing games. I've been trying a lot of touchscreen type games with this, whereas normally with my 12.9 inch iPad Pro, if I'm playing a game, I have it in a stand with a controller because I'm not holding that thing up for very long. I will say though that I'm not missing Face ID. I, I know some people have complained. I did have a couple of those moments where I just stare at the screen and wait for something to happen, but very I, I was already using the iPad mini um, as my secondary iPad for the longest time, so I was kind of used to looking for a Touch ID button. It's just now in a different place, and the placement is nice. I've only mapped two fingers, and it seems like that's all I'll ever need, whereas previously I would map all five available fingers they have in their settings just because you never know which one's going to be available, but the two that they uh, prompt you for at, at setup is actually perfect for any kind of use that you're going to have. The screen is great. No 120 hertz uh, refresh rate. That's fine. I really like that on the iPad Pro uh, when, you know, some games take advantage of it, sure. Or you might notice it while scrolling content, but it's not something that's too in your face. I've also just been one of those nerds who's never been able to see refresh rate. Like I'll be playing a game and a friend will tell me, oh, your, your refresh is lagging. I, I have no idea what they're talking about. <laughs> I don't know what to look for. It's like, oh, it's dropped to uh, 27 frames or something. I, I don't know what you're talking about. But as far as things go, though, it's a great little device. I don't know about the color so much. I got the blue, the sky blue. It's basically the aluminum silver that got a touch of blue color seasoned into it. And I mean, in the right light, you can see it's there, but it's more of like a steely blue color. And all those product photos you saw on the internet, they're shining a bright blue hue light at it is what's happening because it never looks like that. Interesting. But overall, yeah, overall though, it's it's a pretty great device. I like it. Definitely step up from the iPad mini. I am still curious over that iPad mini though, when they refresh it in the future with this design, if they do, because I mean that the rumored display size is around nine inches, 8.5 to nine inches. That's really close to phone territory, but with that square aspect ratio feels like it might be a step down too far uh, because now using this one, it just feels perfect. So I definitely would say like size wise, it's good go. Now, as far as the comparisons between this and the iPad Pro 11 inch, I would say if you're out buying a brand new iPad today and you don't already own an 11 inch iPad Pro, this one's great. Even if you have the 12.9 inch like me, if you want to be crazy and have two iPads, <laughs> this is a good companion tablet. But as a primary, it's perfect for anybody who's just looking to get an iPad because the 11 inch while you're paying a little bit more, depending on your configuration, it's $150 or two, $300 more, depending on what you get. All you're getting is the ProMotion display, Face ID, and the LiDAR sensor and ultra wide angle camera. Now those things are cool and I do utilize all of those things on my iPad Pro, but I don't think it's a deal breaker for if you want to just regular iPad that uses the new Apple Pencil and takes advantage of all the modern technologies. Now, a couple questions. Do you notice the different refresh rate when using the Apple Pencil and latency there? Yes, barely. I I have an Apple Pencil mostly for quit note taking or testing features. I'm not much of an artist or anything. My friends are the ones who usually get my iPad and draw with it more than I do, 
from what I've seen, it is obvious uh, that your pencil line is dragging a little further behind, kind of. Um, it's it's just that lag is there because that that's the main reason the 120 hertz refresh rate was introduced was to yeah. reduce the lag of the Apple Pencil to near nothing. But I wouldn't say that it's detrimental to the experience. It's just a very minor setback. I will say too, though, having both iPads support the same Apple Pencil is really cool. Right. Now, you can't do the cool crayon. Do you know what the crayon does? The Logitech crayon. Right. You just touch it to the iPad and it's paired, and then you touch it to a different iPad and it's paired, which is cool. But this one, you do have to magnetically resync every single time between which iPad you're using, which isn't a big deal. You just snap it on. Yeah. There's an animation, and then you go back to using it. But having one Apple Pencil to roll them all is really cool. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. And so just so our listeners know, you can use that new Apple Pencil, the second version. Both the iPad Air and iPad Pro and the Magic Keyboard works with the new iPad Air and the Pro models as well. So if you have some of those 11-inch iPad Pro accessories, you can use it with the new Air. All you have to do is just upgrade to that Air and, and use it all. Now, one other difference, obviously, is the chipset. You have the A14 and the new iPad Air, while the current iPad Pro 2020 model has that 12Z. And from what I've seen, the single core processing on the A14 and the iPad Air is faster. But if you do anything with multi-core, that 12Z apparently still has an edge. Now, again, how many people are doing multi-core tasks on their iPad? Probably not many unless you're doing like editing video, but most people probably won't notice that difference. I was going to say, I will note with the chipset difference, um, gaming, there is there is some notable difference. Uh, games have to be designed to take advantage of the newer architecture, but if it's just looking for pure performance, it it can take advantage of it right away. I've been playing this game called Genshin Impact. It's out on everything on the planet, but it's on iPad as well, and it's a pretty fun, silly little thing, kind of Breath of the Wild-esque, but more anime. In any case, uh, you go into the settings and you can turn up those graphics to maximum settings and it will warn you when you're overclocking your processor it'll say you know you're using more than you need you can pretty much max everything out on the ipad pro with a12z without it sweating and uh, i don't really see any frame rate drops or anything crazy happening while playing but in the ipad air you max out all those settings you'll notice obvious lag in certain areas but it still keeps up pretty well and doesn't drain that battery too much so it's it's a pretty uh, powerful little processor despite not having the extra graphical edge that the iPad Pro has. Right. And then my last question is, so this iPad Air, supposedly the same physical dimensions as the 11-inch iPad Pro, but the Pro says the screen is 11 inches while the Air is like 10.9. Do you see any difference in the actual bezel size to make up that difference in screen size? Yes, it's only, um, I don't know what percentage of a millimeter kind of thing, but it's 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 noticeable. I can look, the bezel size, I think, between the 12.9 inch Pro and the 11 inch Pro are uh, the same, or at least relatively so. It is noticeably thicker on the 10.9 inch iPad Air, but it's not a detriment. You're, you're not looking at this thing like, oh God, the screen is so small. But I would argue that, again, like I'm using this as a tablet, whereas my bigger iPad, I'm using more as a laptop because it's more used in the keyboard case. It's more used in a desktop scenario. Right. Using this thing as a tablet is great also because it has those slightly wider edges. You have a little more space for your fingers to rest. Your thumb can sit there comfortably. I won't say that that's technically a benefit. I'm not going to say, oh, I don't want thinner bezels, but it's not a bad thing. And a lot. I actually have one more question. So the Touch ID button, this is a new Touch ID style button. Obviously, the iPad Pro's have Face ID. This one is now this first side button Touch ID. So my question is, how fast does it work? And also, since this is on the sleep button, 
Did you ever find yourself trying to do Touch ID and accidentally like clicking it and like putting it back to sleep? Because with the iPhones that had Touch ID, Touch ID was the home button. So you put your finger there and you just press the button inadvertently and it just goes to your home screen as it unlocks. But with the iPad Air, that's also the button that puts it to sleep. So how does that work? It's definitely interesting. Um, You get used to it, but uh, there's a couple of new interaction uh, paradigms going on here. You can actually, so you know the touch the screen to wake, right? right? That's on every Apple device uh, with a touch screen now. You can still do that with the iPad Air, but obviously no authentication happens because you have to still do touch ID. So what Apple's done is you can tap, not press, the touch ID button to wake the screen and authenticate at the same time, which is usually the fastest way to do it. As long as you're doing it that way, you won't notice really any difference between doing that and opening a Touch ID device on, say, the iPhone SE or iPhone 8 with the modern second generation Touch ID sensor. Okay. Weird thing comes in is when you're trying to make a purchase because it tells you to double press the lock button to make a purchase, which is also how you put it to sleep. Huh. So I guess somewhere in software, it's convinced itself, no, I'm not going to sleep right now. I'm making a purchase and you do it and it's fine. But it is a little jarring to hit the power button to make a purchase. That's interesting. So if you accidentally only hit it once while it's making a purchase, does it keep the screen on? I don't know. I might just have to test that, but um, I'm pretty sure it knows what you're doing. Yeah, yeah I, I think it keeps it on. That's very interesting. All right, well, keep your eye on appleinsider.com for more news about iPad Air. And again, there's this rumored November event, which I'll talk about just in a second. And eventually, the A14 is going to have to come to the iPad Pro models. Again, the iPad Air is a great solution now. If you're on that Pro train and you want maybe that larger screen or you want to see the latest that Apple does with the A14, those iPad Pros are probably, I would say, probably coming like February, March time. I would not say that's coming in November. But what is possible in November is the Apple Silicon Max. And there's two pieces of news that kind of points to this coming very soon. Number one, Apple actually invited some select developers to try out some Apple Silicon Labs ahead of the launch. So they have specifically invited developers to kind of try and work with these new Apple Silicon Macs. And in a Bluetooth database, Apple actually listed kind of a placeholder name called like an Apple personal computer in this like Bluetooth filing. And so it really seems like these Apple Silicon Macs are imminent. Of course, Tim Cook said by the end of the year, 2020, we will see our first Apple Silicon Mac. But it remains to be seen, is it going to be an event like we had with the Apple Watch and the iPhone 12s? Is it going to be a press release, which I highly doubt. I'm sure it'll be an event. And if it's an event in November... Will we see Apple Silicon Max and one other thing, namely a new Apple TV also using the A14 chip? Or will we possibly see those AirPod Studio, which John Prosser says is actually delayed, I think, till next year. So if we have that November event, Wes, what do you think we're going to see? Well, um, if you follow John Prosser as closely as I have to, it, he's actually switched that back. Okay. <laughs> the AirPods Studio are now imminent again. It really comes down to they were having trouble with uh, design or whatever, but uh, again, he... You know, he might have gone back to March again. I'll, I'll have to look. But it, it, it does seem to be a very volatile thing. Yeah. Um, I'm hoping that they come out sooner rather than later, but I'd rather them work than not. As far as what's at the November event, there have been other rumors about what's you know what to expect. Um, I'm with the bandwagon of it's going to be low-end Macs first, so we might see a 12-inch MacBook refresh, a Mac Mini. There's some chipset rumors, so the A14 will be in these new Macs. Apparently, the A14X series uh, is what has been rumored. And then maybe starting next year, we'll see a MacBook Pro with something called the A14T, Mm. and then that would be the high-end Mac chipset going forward. There's also rumors of Apple's graphical processor and stuff coming later as well, but yeah, this, this fall 
Pinball is definitely going to be lesser max, probably closer to iPad spec range and a laptop form factor. So keep your eyes on appleinsider.com for any news on that November event or Apple Silicon Max. And kind of here to round out the show, there was some Apple TV Plus news this past week. John Stewart, the talk show host guy, has actually signed a deal to come to Apple TV Plus and do a show about current events and that kind of talk show style. So John Stewart coming to Apple TV Plus and also the very popular comedy Apple TV Plus original Ted Lasso has been renewed for a second and third season on Apple TV Plus. What I find interesting about this is John Gruber actually had an interesting article on Daring Fireball. I'll put a link in show notes to this, but he was looking at the comparison between Netflix, HBO, and Apple TV Plus. And one of the knocks on Apple TV Plus was that it just didn't have the quantity of shows. And John Gruber makes the argument that back in the day, you know, HBO did not have a ton of original content. They had a few pieces of original content that were really good. And if you look at kind of Netflix's strategy, Netflix just kind of floods their service with original content, widely varying in content. There's some good pieces of stuff on Netflix for sure, but they just have this quantity of content. And John Gruber is saying, you know, it almost looks like HBO is trying to make itself more like Netflix and have a lot of original content. And Apple TV is kind of making the play to be like old school HBO, picking and choosing the kind of content to make and trying to make it the best possible. You know, I think that's a great strategy. I think if it has just a few great shows, I know For All Mankind is coming out again for a second season. If you haven't seen Defending Jacob yet on Apple TV Plus, again, that's great. You know, they have the Greyhound movie with Tom Hanks. And now with Jon Stewart and Ted Lasso being renewed, I think this is a, a big win actually for Apple TV Plus, And it could really shape into a great streaming service in the near future. You know, I know I'm the probably the oddball here, but as far as different services go, I, I, I pay for too many and watch too little, <laughs> uh, like most, I'm sure like many people do, but Netflix has lost its charm for me these last few years. I mean, I know I watch Stranger Things like the rest of the world and right. a couple, maybe a couple of other things. Half of the stuff I watch, they've canceled. There's no more BoJack Horseman. They Everything that I like, they've uh, said that there's a final season coming, like they've ended Bill Burr's F is for family it's like okay well there's another thing gone and it's getting to the point now where i've argued with myself over do i just need to subscribe for month to month when the shows come out watch it in a week and then unsubscribe again same thing with hulu I don't think I've ever watched a Hulu original other than that Palm Springs movie. And then I'm <laughs> otherwise I'm just watching uh, old reruns of cartoons that I used to right. like. But Apple TV almost hit for hit. Sure, I'm not watching everything. I don't really care for the documentaries, but like almost all the TV shows, uh, t- like drama series and the Greyhound movie and upcoming movies that are you know down the line all have been pretty amazing i'm I'm quite enjoying them while some of them maybe hit a little bit lower end c wasn't at the blockbuster everyone wanted it to be but it still wasn't bad and it's interesting to say that five dollars a month or whatever cost it is an apple one subscription dollar for dollar it's doing much more for me than any of these other subscription services are right now and we could be getting James Bond in the future. Oh man, correct, so. <laughs> that that was yes, that was the other rumors that you know they were, Apple was in talks to buy that No Time to Die James Bond movie that's yet unreleased, which I would have loved <laughs> for that to be on Apple TV Plus, uh, and it's where I could get it there. But you know, I agree with Netflix. I saw Stranger Things. I actually thought the third season was less desirable, and so I wasn't crazy about that. I agree. The other two shows I enjoyed on that was The Crown and Chef's Table. You know, I watched all those, and those were fun. 
But most of the other original content just doesn't do it for me. And they don't really have a lot of the movies I'm interested in either. And so I actually recently canceled my Netflix subscription because I just found I wasn't using it. Hulu, it's this weird thing because I was in a 007 mood. And so I went to look for Casino Royale and it's on Hulu of all places. And so I don't know, (laughs) they have this random, uh, I don't know, library. Sometimes they have some cool movies, but, but yeah, Apple TV plus, it really looks like with it being included in the Apple one services bundle and all the original content they're bringing, it's really shaping up to be a good deal. And they also extended those free trials for many of the people whose trial was going to expire this month. I don't know if you got one of these emails, but that free trial extended through February of 2021. Right. So, you know, they're really trying to give people all the chance to watch their content. Well, you look back at last year when Apple introduced Apple TV Plus and the world wasn't on fire quite as much. And the comparisons that were being made was, oh, it's no, you know, it's no HBO. It's no Netflix. This thing's, it's a pile of, you know, garbage. It's, it's whatever. Let's compare it to Disney plus. That's the closest thing we got to it. Oh, it can't even compete with that. Look at Disney plus's, uh, back catalog. There's no way Apple TV can touch that. But for Disney fans or people like me who like collecting movies already owned all of like, I already owned every Disney like movie, whatever Mulan, Hercules, whatever on iTunes ages ago, whenever it came out of the vault, I'd be first in line to go buy it because I was a fan of that. And that's where Disney plus was aimed. So the original content was probably more the selling point. And what have we got for nerds like me, the Mandalorian? <laughs> sure, Jeff Goldblum's fun, but there's nothing. I've I think I've turned Disney Plus on three times, and it was mostly to watch The Simpsons. <laughs> I'm not sure, you know, what they're doing over there. I'm excited for another season of Mandalorian. I'm excited for these Marvel TV shows that have been infinitely pushed back to the future. You know, I might see them before I die of old age, but yeah. we'll, we'll see. It's just looking back now at these comparisons between Apple TV Plus and these other services. It's kind of laughable to think, or even the compar- comparisons being made now it's just kind of laughable to think that it's just like bad deal go away apple you're no no idea what you're doing why are you doing this at all yeah. you know yeah yeah i agree and so i'm excited to see what they do in the near future i will say disney plus well i did own some disney pixar movies for kids like i have three kids there's actually some good stuff on disney plus they actually found this uh big hero six cartoon oh yeah uh, which yeah disney plus original and like for that alone i'm like okay disney plus for the kids 100 percent. oh well i would never say if you're a parent disney plus is a is, is a win i mean if you're a verizon customer you get it for free anyway so there you go yeah yeah, the just being able to flip that on and and brainwash your children into watching TV <laughs> for hours on end so you can read a book, sure. Yes. But it's there, it's there for you, six dollars a month. That's right. You know, I didn't realize you get it with Verizon. You know, I, with AT and T, they have the deal now where you get HBO Max, and I'm like, I don't even know if I'm watching anything on there. <laughs> like, they don't even have the original movies that I'm really after. So yeah. Anyway, oh, so one last thing too, we've had some awesome listeners review the Apple Insider podcast on Apple Podcasts, giving us a five star rating and review. We really appreciate it. If you haven't done it yet, we would greatly appreciate it. But one listener, his name is Wamil. I don't know if that's his real name or not, but he's actually from New Zealand. He wanted to know how we get different cover arts for the episode chapters. And let me just say, if you didn't know, whatever podcast player you listen to the Apple Insider podcast in, there's chapter artwork for every chapter. You can actually look and browse the chapters and jump to a topic you're interested in if you want to skip forward or whatever. And there's a chapter art and links if you actually click the chapter art in something like Pocket Casts or Overcast. It actually links you to that topic. So he was wondering how I do it. I edit all 
my podcast with Ferrite on iPad, and it has a built-in feature to add that chapter artwork and a link to the chapter. It's super easy. I know Marco Arment also has a tool for adding chapter artwork and links. I believe it's called Forecast, and it's a free app that you can use to add that stuff as well. So anyway, that's how I do it. Hope you enjoy it. If you didn't know it was there, check it out. You can see all the chapter arts and stuff. I'll put Wes's iPad setup in the iPad Air chapter for this week's episode, so you can check that out. We'd love to hear from you. Questions, feedback, anything you have, you can tweet at me, at Stephen Robles. You can tweet at Wes, at Hilitech, both of those Twitter handles are in the show notes along with links to everything we talked about today. Also, don't forget to check out HomeKit Insider, the other show on appleinsider.com that comes out every Monday. You can just search for HomeKit Insider in the podcast listening app of your choice. Check it out there. Thanks for tuning in this week. We'll catch you next time. Music